Charlotte and I love to come and sing with you and to worship our, our Lord with you. It's great to be back. I don't remember when our last Sunday was here, but I think we've been to Macedonia, Albania, Mexico, and Israel since we last saw you, I think. Oh, yeah, in California last week, but um, that's another story. Uh, it's Father's Day, and uh, I thought I would just beat up on all the, pa- all, the, all the fathers and pastors that are here today. No, I'm just kidding about that. Uh, that. That Probably when I was a young preacher, that was my intention. I knew everything there was to know about fathering when my kids were three and under. But uh, since then, I've discovered I don't know nearly enough. Uh, so rather than that, I think we will talk about the Father, our Heavenly Father, uh, this morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1? 1 John chapter 1. Uh, we won't look at the very first verses, but we'll we will be studying today verses 5 through the first few verses of the two verses of chapter 2 where we are going to learn some or observe and apply to our life I trust some incredible truths about our heavenly father the unbelievable incredible father who is in heaven uh, I will say one thing about being a dad I think um, over the years, uh, I tried to understand and teach to my boys that there was, there really were no lies that were inconsequential. If you lied about anything, there were consequences with those things. Uh, Charlotte and I watched the video this spring of our 10-year-old, I think she is, daughter, named after her grandmother whose testimony, read by while she was being baptized or just as she was about to be baptized by a friend of hers, said, my name is Charlotte Bubar and I was a liar. That was how it started. And we thought, well, this will be interesting. But it was, it was actually the fact that she realized the sin of lying was uh, a mark of the flesh that needed to be uh, removed and she needed redemption and she came to Christ as her Savior. So there really aren't inconsequential lies, but I do think there are some inconsequential truths, uh, things that people hang on to. Our, our youngest uh, son, who is speaking today in another church, which thrills my heart, and Charlotte's as well, um, uh, he's really good at trivia, most of which I think is. Uh, absolutely worthless but he's really good at it uh, so there are a few things for instance you probably know these things that on average a right-handed person outlives a left-handed person by almost a decade just on average now I don't know you may all of a sudden decide I'm going to become a right-handed person you know but or uh, or this really important truth that the word dunth is the only word in the English language that rhymes with the word month, um, and actually dunth isn't a word, it means in urban uh, dictionaries, it just means a word that has no meaning. So there is no word that really rhymes with month, but you'll probably sit there for the rest of my message this morning trying to figure out, oh, let's see, there must be something. Or I love this one that means absolutely nothing to me at all, except if you've got a lot of little kids around you, maybe you could apply it in some way. But if you take, if, if, if a person yells for eight years, seven months, and six days, they will produce enough sound energy to heat one cup of coffee. Now, <laughs> do you have any kids like that that come up with those kinds of trivia? Well, 
Good. I'm glad you don't. Uh, But there are truths that are absolutely essential to our life. I mean, incredibly important. And sometimes we pick up in the Bible and we say, oh, I know those things. I I want us to go back into the Word of God this morning and see some truths about this Father in heaven that will make the biggest difference in our life if we'll just allow them to. And that's our intention today. So let me read to you, and you can follow along. This is from the ESV translation of 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. Here are the words, the word of God. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. You'll only find that word here and in chapter 4 in all the New Testament, so mark it. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. So, Father, help us to see, understand, in the best way we can, and apply your word to our hearts today. We want to see the greatness of who you are. We want to live in that greatness And allow it to transform how we think, how we walk, how we carry on in our daily activities as we await the coming of our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to 1 John. You may have read it lately. When I read those verses, I can't speak them from memory, but it's almost like I don't have to peek too much. We've heard it so many times. You know that John was the last of the living 12 disciples. Of course, Lazarus, I mean, uh, uh, was gone already. Yeah. John was a reporter, verse 5. He reported of who Christ was. In fact, because they were witnesses of the life of Christ. Verses 1, 2, and 3 tell us that He proclaimed it. They proclaimed this message. They were different than reporters, it seems, are today. They weren't giving their opinion. They weren't making up some kind of stories to sell the press. They were simply saying, this is who he is. They were far more like a court stenographer, except their life was involved in what they said. And so... John gives to us this message. Of the 27 New Testament offerings, John, you know, penned five of them. This one 
and its subsequent two letters really near the very end of the first century. It's been said that the gospel bearing his name was written to unbelievers in order to awaken their faith. You think about that from chapter 20. But that he wrote this track to believers to deepen their assurance of their relationship with Christ, chapter 5, verse 13. In other words, to uh, think of this, John wrote the gospel to evoke faith and the epistle was given to help us examine our life in light of that faith, to see if we really are living in that faith. One of the preachers from a previous century, a man by the name of Sidwell Baxter, who wrote a marvelous big book, really, about all the books in the Bible. He said this about First John. First, first, we need to know Christian truth from error, and then, that's the Gospel of John, then having known that truth, that we would abide in it. That's First John. So here is this truth. Here is this truth. I want us to remember that. Here is this truth given to the church to be embraced and to change our lives as we understand it and again as we apply it to our lives. So what are the truths that this text gives us today? These, these things, these truths about who God the Father is. The first is this, that God is morally unmatched. God is morally unmatched. That's verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. And here it is in one word, but we're going to see it in three. Here it is in one. God is light. Now we're also going to see that God is faithful and we're going to see that God is just from verse 9. Also where it speaks of God being light. We come to it. God desires desires to identify us with these same moral characteristics. In other words, our lives ought to demonstrate them too, but God is indispensably this way. Jesus does say that you are the light of the world. Jesus, or the, or the New Testament does say that we, it calls us good and faithful servants. That's a sighting about what we're to be. Or that we are to administer justice. We see that in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, almost in every kind of setting. So those are to be marks of our life. Light, faithfulness, justice. But together they really describe this, what I would call, and I suppose others have called as well, this transcendence of God. Uh, transcendence is something that we don't, we can't completely understand. We haven't fully experienced. So it's bigger than we are. I think I have a couple of, of pictures on, for you on the screen today. There's a picture of, of, of seeing the, the sun from the earth and what it might be like to live in this light. But then there's also a picture you'll now see of this light up close, what it would be like to see the, the grandeur of the, the sun and its explosiveness upon our lives. And in that, we see something of transcendence of light. But what I want us to see today is that God, who is the God of, of light, faithfulness, and justice, is this God who is full of grace and richness and provision, and somehow He comes, this God comes and touches our life 
in a marvelous way. Now, I don't know if we have any 10-year-olds left here, but we have some kids that are a little bit older than that, a little bit younger than that. Most, I think most children who are 10, let's say, and under, they look at their parents and they think their parents are transcendent. In other words, they can't quite figure them out, but they are really important to them and they really feel wonderful about who their parents are. And even if their parents haven't been so wonderful in life, there's, they want to be with their mother or their father. There's something about them that seems beyond all that they can comprehend, all that they have understood in life. And that's the way I am, and I want to stay that way for the rest of my life, and really for into eternity, the greatness and majesty and glory of who God is, in particular, to see Him as this one in the realm of morality who is beyond my comprehension. That's His beyondness, the transcendence of God. So what does this mean when we read that God is light? We can look at it from a number of different angles, but let me give them to you quickly. One, the bio, in the biblical sense, <clears throat> where there is light, there is no darkness. Do we agree with that? Where there is light, there is no darkness. Lightness pushes away the darkness. We can come out of the darkness into the light. We can't live in both because if we're living in both, we're living in what? We're still living in darkness. Maybe a glimpse at the light, but we're still living in darkness. So God is absolutely the presence of all that is where there is no darkness. Secondly, he is constantly revealing himself, revealing who he is. That's what we discovered. I discovered by looking at my parents, who were godly parents, when I was a very small child. But then I started to see it in other areas of my life. And finally, I saw it in the Word of God. And finally, I found that he would even reveal himself to me personally through his Spirit, all in the progression of the acts of growing up in Christ, coming to know Him as my Savior. So there's this constant revealing. He is, and this is a characteristic of of light as well, He is absolute truth. There is no variation. There is no dimness. This is who He is. And ultimately, He is the fullness or the impeccable morality. That is, morality as no one else has ever experienced it, that's who he is. No sin, in other words. Sin is the expression of darkness. And that's why Paul will say, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of, remember, light, Romans 12:13. And then he goes on to say, uh, which helps me understand what it means to, to be uh, what it means for Jesus to be light. He says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I clothe myself with the Lord Jesus Christ so that I am experienced in my daily life the greatness of God, who He is, and something, at least, of His light. And that's why, if you go further, you'll find that Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. You get it? So it, it's not about you. It's not about how great you are. It's not about what you've done. It's about who God is and how Christ has come to clothe himself and bring Christ or God into our lives. And therefore, he will say, shine. Come on, brothers and sisters, we're here to shine his light in the world of darkness that's around us. So he is light, but more than that, or with that, he is also faithful. That's verse 9. This is another mark of his, his impeccable morality. He is faithful. 
Now, just briefly, faithful, you, you, you know this, faithfulness is a covenantal word. It's, it's about a relationship. It's about this God who has come and He's touched our life and He interacts with us and that's His desire. So Paul will say in 2 Timothy 2.13, one of his last words, he will say this, even when we were faithless, He is still what? Remember? Faithful, of course. Or as my father-in-law used to say to me when I was young in ministry and, and wondered how I was ever going to do this stuff that people were asking me to do and I couldn't, I couldn't quite see myself doing it. He would remind me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, the one who has called you is faithful and it says, and the part I had to underline, he will do it. He will do it. Joe, you won't do it. He will do it. That was, that was the calling of my father-in-law using the scriptures in my life. That's faithfulness. There's also this matter of being just. In an unapproachable way, God is just. And, and this helps us all connect. Now let me just show you that. That's from verse 9 as well. He's faithful and just. Because, now connect it with the next phrase, to forgive us our sins. So it's somehow all of this light and this faithfulness and this justice of God is so that when God touches my life, He can remove and will, I'll use the noun putridity, which is not a word I normally use uh, in life, but I mean the vileness of life. He will touch that and move that from my life. And the way He did that, I know this is theological and it's kind of heavy stuff, but listen to me. He'll do that by sending His Son who died for us on the cross. That is the only way that we get to experience the light and the faithfulness and the justice of God in a wonderful, glorious way. So here I stand. I just want you to know, here I stand today condemned my, by my sin. Condemned by my sin. But let me finish. I stand here redeemed, not by water, not by the church, not by because I was raised in a Christian family, but by the very death and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. That's the glory of this Father that we know who has provided this for us. It's been a long time ago now, but I remember being with a friend who, is, who went to be with the Lord in his early 60s, pastor of a large free church up in Minnesota. Um, but I remember one time we were on a board together, and he came into that board meeting. And I, you know, board meetings are where you make decisions, right? Board meetings are where you get work done. But he came in and he said, sing this with me. And I'd never heard this before, but I found it afterwards. Oh, sweet wonder. Oh, sweet wonder. Jesus, the Son of God, how I adore Thee. Oh, how I love Thee. Jesus, the Son of God. And every once in a while, Steve's voice, because he was a much better singer than I, it would come to my ear, and I'd sing those songs, those, those lyrics, best I could, about this Jesus who has allowed me to see the Father, who is so glorious and so wonderful. And may I just say to you, I know you probably have all kinds of things going on in your life, things to do today. 
but it was Calvin Miller who once said, those that hurry in seldom stay long, referencing how we approach God. We hurry in. We hurry out. We go on to something else. Find some time, some way, some place in your life to ponder the glory of God. See, God wants, wants, you, wants you to know Him. He wants you to know that you stand even today on holy ground. You may not see a burning bush. Moses did. But you can see the glory of God. God was in the garden. He was on the mountain. He was in the cloud. He was in the tabernacle. He was in the temple. That same God, that God who is light, is here today. And He wants you to know Him. That's one truth. Here's the second truth. First leads to the second. It's this, and it's really about God. It's not really about me. But sin breaks fellowship with God. That's verses five through t- or 6 through 10. Remember this. Sin breaks fellowship with God. It seems that John is aware that even Christians can be flippant about sin, callous, careless. Otherwise, he wouldn't warn us. But he warns us about it. He says, don't lie. Verse 8, don't deceive. Verse 10, don't make God out to be a liar. He's talking about the sin that breaks fellowship with God. Here's what I walk away with today. God wants to have fellowship with us. And He wants to provide it for us as well. But listen, the habitual and sometimes momentary unconfessed sin keeps us from what He wants to give us. So there are two key words in this section. The one is fellowship. The second one is sin. Fellowship and sin. And please note, in these five verses, each one of them begins with the same word. Did you catch that? I know there's uh, there's a conjunction in here, but you can see what it is. If, 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 five times, if. Four out of the five really describes a disastrous scenario. But there's a goal in all of it. So if you can pack, pack it all together, picture it all together, there are two two goals. One is this, or three goals. One is this, that, that, that we are to have fellowship with God. That's verse 6. That's really what this, most people probably when they preach this passage, that's what they talk about, the fellowship with God. Fellowship is about life connection with God. It's not about the fact that you have a relationship with Him because, listen, relationship with God is established through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And when you have been washed in the blood of Christ and thus accepted Christ as your Savior into your life, uh, you have a relationship with Him. But here's the problem for me. Maybe it is for you. I don't know. It's, a, it's really an issue of fellowship. It's why some people aren't sure if they're even saved. Who are? Who have come to faith? They're not sure. Why? Because sin gets in the way and fellowship, fellowship is broken. Fellowship with God is what, what God intended. He, he meant for life to be good. But the sin thing gets in the way. Christians don't always walk in the light, verse 6. 
they, they go back to the very arena from which they were redeemed. It, it seems crazy to me, doesn't it to you, that we would do that, but we all do it. I mean, we're like people who just hang out with the fireflies that were in our life before, just buzzing around our head. When God has brought us into the light, into who He is. And then we try to convince ourselves that we're really not that bad. Many of us. Maybe not you, but most of us. We compare ourselves with ourselves. We compare ourselves, you know, I'm not as bad as I used to be. We compare ourselves with, with others. Or I'm not certainly not as bad as he is or she is. Sometimes we blame everything on God. Whatever our issue is must be his fault. Why didn't he change things? And while we may be secure in Christ, we live like dead men. We live like dead people. So here's how it works in life. Every once in a while, I'll meet somebody who's estranged from their parents. No relationship. It's tragic. Tragic. Our, uh, our youngest son and his wife have a foster little boy. He'll be two pretty soon. Uh, his parents are, are drug parents. Uh, they're, they're supposed to see him every so often. They never pass the drug test, so they never get to see him. They're it's an estranged relationship. The little boy doesn't know that because he's got loving people around him right now. But, but that's not the way it was supposed to be. There's supposed to be this relationship, this fellowship, this communion. But listen, in our life, we're like that estranged child. Sin keeps us from knowing and experiencing all that God intended for us in Him. So, so sometime in your life, if you, are not, if you haven't been there before, get there today. We need to get off the fence post about our sin. We need to say, God, in light of who you are, this God of light, this God of faith who is faithful and just, I want to live with you in fellowship with you, and you will not have fellowship with sin, so I come to you. You can do that today and confess your sin. Verse 7 also tells us that this is another goal for our life, and that is when we have fellowship with God, He wants us to have fellowship with one another. John knows this, that if we walk, if we walk in Christ, if we are clothed with Christ, if we are in the light, then there is the absence of darkness, and what we have then is fellowship with each other. Now let me, let me be very clear about this again. Once we come to know Christ... We are in relationship with all others. We are. We have a relationship. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are members of how many bodies? One body. Even the church down the street that might baptize somebody, whoops, a different way than, than I would, or some other things that are, are different. They have a different view on the millennium than I do. I'm part of that body. But I don't have a relationship. I don't have fellowship with some of them. I mean, we need to remember, as I like to, coin, to use the phrase that was coined by somebody else, that we are a motley lot of mudites. 
That's what we are. We all are in this thing at times together. We all walk in sinful ways, but even as we walk in those sinful ways, we have relationship, but we need fellowship with one another. And that's what God provides when we come and confess our sins, even sometimes, as we learn in other places in in the Scriptures, to one another. That's hard to do. We don't like to do that. No child likes to say, I was wrong. We'd rather live in the lie as long as we can. We need to confess those, those sins of our life so that we might have God's goal fulfilled in our life, fellowship with one another. Oh, the stories that I can tell and your pastor can tell of people who are not in fellowship, who are members of the same, sometimes physical family, but spiritual family. Tragedy, tragedy. But there's a third goal. And it seems to be very obvious from the passage as well, that's verse 10, that we have possession of God's Word. That's what God wants us to live in light of the fact that we have this possession of God's Word. God's Word is what's to make the difference of my life. You go back, and I just keep going through these verses and, and reading down through them again. In verse 6, he says, if we, don't, if we lie, we do not practice the truth, the Word of God. If, uh, uh, if, if verse uh, 8 we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. We come to verse, not, uh, verse 10. We say that we have not sinned. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's always about his word, his truth in us. See, you and I would say, I would say, maybe you'd say it with me, that I have hid your word in my heart. I have hid my, your word in my heart, so, says the psalmist, so that I might not sin against God. The purpose of the word of God in my life is to help me see my relationship with Him. And God's word was was not given. Uh, uh, God's word will will not govern. Excuse me, my life if I am not repentant of my sin. I just live in my misery. David understood that. He said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? Path doesn't mean, by the way, in the Hebrew language and in, in, in the, the context that is written there, it doesn't mean it, he'll kind of lighten up so I know which job I should take next. It's not what it's about at all. There was a good Dallas professor that taught me that, by the way, uh, pastor. Uh, but it was uh, it's about the morality of God. That's the path. I want to walk... God's path, moral life, God. So, please, let's not tell each other that we're sinless. I, I met one man, his name was Earl Rowe, he was 84 years old, he was a member of this little church that we planted in the state of Maine, and one day he said he didn't sin anymore. And you know, he's the only person I've ever believed that, because I never saw him even seem to get upset when I was upset uh, about things but seriously nobody nobody is without sin and so if we're going to live this life that God had called us to in the glory of who God is we need to be a people who recognize the sin of our own life and that brings us really to this last great truth and it is found in this that God offers us his forgiveness we don't get it we don't do it we don't make it happen it's God's forgiveness God forgives he's the giver of life and we see that at the end of verse of chapter one really the verse two verses of the second chapter 
Now, you, you, you can read and you could have a, not only a great sermon, you could have a great theological class on these few words that help us understand what God's forgiveness is all about. But it's incredible. This God of light, this God of light has come to us and he has borne out in himself that light into our life so that darkness is removed and we can have fellowship with him. But it's essential. This is the pivot point that God must forgive. God must forgive. Is there anything else that is necessary? Anything else required to know the forgiveness of God? Well, our forgiveness is wrapped up in these principles. Number one, verse nine, that we confess our sin. You know that. That we confess our sin. Secondly, that there must be an advocate. There must be actually an, an effective advocate who will speak on our behalf because the fact is even though I've confessed my sin, I'm still a sinner. So I need, I need somebody to be my advocate. And, oh, by the way, he can't just be any kind of advocate. He must be righteous. Isn't that what the passage says? Look at it. He must be righteous. Advocate who is righteous. He is what we just looked at, the very beginning of this message. And not only that, he must provide, and here's the kicker of it all, he must provide an adequate sacrifice. That is this propitiation. That is this atoning work of, that, that must be done where my life experiences somebody's sacrifice that is fully satisfying. In other words, fully effective. That is, it accomplishes what I really need. That is, I need my sins to be forgiven by someone who will pave the price because you see, the Father of light still is going to have nothing to do with sin. So there has to be this one that will go between me. And there is. There is. It is Christ Himself. It's a marvelous picture. It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of our Father. It's a picture of one who will pay this incredible Father who through His only begotten Son paid it all. We sing that song. Jesus paid it all. Paid in full. And so there are really simple questions for us this morning as we conclude. The first one is, have you trusted Him? Young people, children who are here today, you're hearing the gospel. You may not be listening all the time because it's difficult listening to somebody my age talk about things like this. I know that. I, I still remember what it was like to sit in the second row. I was a PK. I sat there, sometimes the first row. I got the stare from my father. You listen. And if God's Spirit speaks in your heart, you trust that Savior today. And maybe some of us who are grandparents who have been very religious but never have come to know that faith in Christ. Trust Him today. There's a God of light who is faithful and just who has provided all that we need so that we might have forgiveness if we will confess our sin and come to Him in faith. But it's, it's not only to you that this passage needs to be applied, is it? It's to all of us God would ask Joe Bubar today, are you serious about your sin? Does it, does it, do you let it affect you? Do, you? do you wait and see the fruit of sin in your life to the point that fellowship with God is broken, fellowship with one another is broken, living in a lie? Oh, let's, let's be serious about this. God offers us this message of hope, but he helps us see the reality of sin in our life. Or maybe, maybe we need this morning just to ask ourselves, am I relying on the one who forgives?
You know, some of you here, some of you here have beaten yourself up long enough. You've said, well, I've made so many mistakes. I've done this and I've done that. God could never, could never. He already did. He paid the price. He, he just wants you to live in His grace. Just keep the communion with Him open. Because He paid it all. I read something last night from uh, John Piper's website, which I glance at often at least about the hymn that we sing prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love are you like that I am I am oh here's my heart oh take it and seal it with the spirit from above. Jesus paid it all. You can't pay anything more. It's done. It's wonderful. Let Him provide for you that hope and that shalom, that peace that only He can give. So to your word, we turn again and we ask God that you would apply it to our hearts, that we might be freshened in our life today. Maybe this morning, just in a moment of prayer, you will say, God, there's been this stuff going on in my life and I confess it. I, I don't know what it might be at all. I'm not even going to begin to make a list for you because I might just be making my own list. God knows. God's Spirit knows. The same God that convinced you of who Christ is is the same, same God in His Spirit who will convict you of sin and righteousness. Just come to the Father. Come to this undescribable Father with open arms. He waits for you. So we pray these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen.